Hey everybody, Andrew here. So we do this totally geeky thing. Everybody turns on their silly camera so I can see everybody. Hello everybody. <laughs> nice to say hi. Teaching my first live program in uh, August. Shambhala Mountain Center, second in this series on my preparing to die track, a week-long program, which is gonna have a dual thing. We're gonna do a live stream as well, hybrid program. Um, hey, Andy, if you get a chance, you can put that in the, in the Andy's recovering um, from a, a COVID shot yesterday, so he's a little under the weather. But if you're there, still alive, and, and I can put up the link for the SMC thing, Andy, that's great. If not, don't worry about it. Okay, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, thank you, Matt. So yeah, my first live event in, in like 18 months. In fact, it's my only one in the States this year. Um, so kind of excited about that. Um, what we do here at this event, if you're new to it, we've been doing it for well over a year. We started it at the kind of COVID thing. Is we just hang out, we get together, we talk about stuff. Sometimes I do a little riff. Um, sometimes I just turn right to the question. So we get some really good submitted questions. And then mostly it's a live Q&A where you all can come on and we can talk about whatever you want. So if you have a question, you can start to ping it up, get ready to raise your hand, that sort of thing. But um, in terms of other things we're doing, uh, releasing the Claire Johnson interview, my second one with her, that'll be released tomorrow. Um, we discussed her book, The Art of Transforming Nightmares, which is a really great book. So we had real fun doing that. Um, I'm in contact with my friend Ian Baker to talk about Hidden Lands, Bayeul, that sort of thing. Probably not gonna do that for a couple of weeks because of his schedule. Um, Monday, we've got the meditation thing that's still going on. We're doing one more session on analytic meditation, dissecting anger <clears throat> and fear and things like that using kind of um, just the gift of insight meditation through, through the analytic meditation tradition. Tuesday, the book study group are doing a couple more weeks with uh, Joe and his really lovely book, you know, the Winnie the, the Winnie the Pooh and Meditation 2 book, which is really a great book. Um, webinar next Wednesday on, on uh, stages of dream yoga. I think that's coming up. Um, and, you know, just that sort of thing. So here's what I thought it would do today. I'm, uh, I'm actually pitching this book. You've been hearing about it a little bit. I've been um, about to pitch this book to some agents. Um, and so I wanted to, this is a book, it's called, Okay, I'm Mindful, Now What? <laughs> Exploring the Wonders of the Mind. It's a critique of um, the mindfulness revolution, constructive critique, points out all the great, great super benefits, but a lot of the unknown stuff. You know, I've been doing some homework on this. 200, 200 to 500 million people around the world now meditate. 35 million people in the US meditate at least once a week. Um, Headspace has been downloaded, that app, meditation app has been downloaded more, more than 40 million times. Um, they're expecting the meditation industry, it's a weird term actually, to be a two, over $2 billion industry by 2022. Um, uh, what is it? The mindful.org site has 575,000 visits uh, a month. So anyway, my mindfulness is huge, but it's got some pretty big limitations. And so my charter in this book is to point out the limitations and to like, okay, what's next, what now? And so part of what I do is, uh, part four of this book is about the body. And what I write about here, I'll share a little bit of with you and then maybe this can give you a chance to line up some questions or maybe you have a question about what I'll share with, with you about the unbelievable importance of actually bringing the body with you uh, along the path, which may sound kind of silly because we bring our bodies with us on one level all the time, but on, on another level, we don't. It's like James Joyce said of one character, you've heard this famous quote, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. <laughs> what a great line. Well, we are each Mr. and Mrs. Duffy. We, we live a short distance from our body. <clears throat> Most of our, our life is a kind of out-of-body experience where you know, we're not present to our life. We're pinging around the past and future and not really fully embodied. And so this little riff um, is a whole a section, maybe a 20-page section in my book, um, 
about the unbelievable importance of working with the body. And so I just wanted to show a little bit of what I was editing this morning. So section six, oh, I'm sorry, section four of the body starts with a header quote by Henry Miller. Our own physical body possesses a wisdom which we who inhabit the body lack. And so this is um, some first section of, the, of this section I wanna share with you. As we progress from the mindfulness revolution into the meditation revolution, and that's what I'm pointing out is how mindfulness is really limited and that there's a whole array of practices beyond it. Sooner or later, we're gonna run into the body. If we don't, we may find ourselves running into therapy, which often delivers its healing results by teaching us how to stay embodied. Meditation does work with the body to some extent, <clears throat> as in the first of the four foundations of mindfulness, mindfulness of body, but it does not explore the depths of our soma and the natural resources contained within. Exploring the wonders of the mind mandates that we also explore the wonders of the body. And this is a famous line from the meditation master Saraha, quote, there is no place of pilgrimage as fabulous and as open as this body of mind, no place more worth exploring, end quote. In Zen, it is said that the path is only accomplished through the body. To appreciate the importance of body work on the path, we need to refine our understanding of both mind and body. The influential philosopher Rene Descartes successfully divorced mind from body with devastating consequences. He did some real damage, this guy, um, mathematician, philosopher, and he did it basically so that he wouldn't be burned at the stake by the church, really as a way to centrifuge out mind from body so he could go ahead and riff on his stuff without the church coming after him. It's time for a gut check on Cartesian dualism. Meditation works to mend the philo this philosophical fracture. Science can lend a hand in this healing or holding. So this stuff is interesting. One of the cool things about writing a book, if you've ever done it, is so, it's really, is just doing the research on it. And so putting all this data together, some of which I'll share with you is to me, the highlight of doing this kind of work. So when we often talk about, we often talk about having a gut feeling when we first meet someone, trusting our gut instinct when faced with difficult situations. The mind-gut connection, which, which deals with the entire length of our inner tube from esophagus to anus is more than just a metaphor. <clears throat> this enteric nervous system is often referred to as our body's second brain. Hundreds of millions of neurons connect the brain to the enteric nervous system, a network as complex and abundant as the network of neurons in our spinal cord. Isn't that amazing? Your gut has as many neurons as your spinal cord. The brain in your head and the brain in your gut are truly of one mind and in constant communication. Justin and Erica Sonnenberg, microbiologist and immunologist at Stanford Medical School, write, quote, is that voice in your head that is asking for a snack coming from your mind or is it emanating from the insatiable masses in your bowels? Recent evidence indicates that not only is our brain aware of our gut microbes, but these bacteria influence our perception of the world and can alter our behavior. Just ask anybody who's had the munchies, right? <laughs> it is becoming clear that the influence of our microbiota reaches far beyond the gut to, an effect, to affect an aspect of our biology few would have ever predicted our mind, end quote. It's a two-way street with signals streaming back and forth from head to gut and gut to head. So a couple more bits of data. This, this is why I'm sharing it with you because it's, it's, this research is cool. Lest you think that your heart isn't into it, scientists estimate some 40,000 neurons or sensory neurites abide in the heart, creating a cardiac neural network. Neurologist Kulreet Chaudhary, she's the gal I interviewed a couple of weeks ago. So we posted, I think that was the last interview we posted. She's really cool. So this is what she says. This cardiac nervous system is comprised of independently operating intracardiac neurons, leading some researchers to characterize it as the little brain in the heart, end quote. The heart actually sends more signals to the brain than the brain does to the heart. Back to her, which has a significant effect on brain functioning functions such as attention, perception, memory, and problem solving, end quote. When heart and head are not in harmony, this actually inhibits higher cognitive functions, limiting our ability to think clearly, remember things, learn, reason, and make effective decisions. 
right? Learning to control our hearts, whether through deep breathing or meditation, we can gain mastery over our brains and vice versa. This had scientific backing to what ancient meditation masters discovered years ago, thousands of years ago, as embodied in the Sanskrit word citta, heart-mind. So this is really interesting sidebar that both in Pali and Sanskrit, mind and heart, same word. So this has a lot of really interesting implications. Like when you're doing real mindfulness meditation, it's also heartfulness. And if that heartfulness isn't included and it's just a purely cognitive cerebral event, that's not real mindfulness. So let's see. Uh, yeah, two more paragraphs. I'm just gonna, I, guess I wanna share this and then the section will be done. The Heart Math Institute founded in 1991 to explore the relationship between mental, physical and emotional systems works to resolve inner conflicts between the head and the heart, bringing them into harmony via heart-brain coherence. Psychophysiological coherence, the more technical term for heart-brain resonance, is a state of optimal function with enhanced cognitive abilities and improved emotional balance. When information is flowing properly between these systems, you enter the zone, the flow state of optimal performance. You can generate heart-brain coherence or inner conflict resolution between the head and the heart by breathing slowly at a 10 second rhythm. So this is what I've been sharing with you. I think we've been doing this on the Monday night thing. Their studies have shown that if you do a, a five second in breath, five second out breath, it actually helps to resonate. So let's, let's do this. This is actually a cool thing. So for the next five seconds, you can count 1,001, 1,002, or just I'll stop it once done. So it's basically a, a long extension of the in-breath. It's a little, it's like an elaboration of the one breath meditation that I've been riffing out for like over a year, right? So for five second in-breath, five second out-breath, their studies have shown that alone will kind of put heart-brain coherence back online. So let's do it, ready? Five seconds in, five seconds out. That's it. I use this all the time. So when I came across this data, you know, I learned the one breath meditation from the Mahamudra tradition. And when I came across this data, it was like ka-ching, modern support for an ancient practice. One last paragraph. But why limit things to just two brains or even three? In her study of the human brain, the neuroscientist Candace Pert, I'm a huge fan of her. She, she died a couple of years ago. She was a rock star, a psychoneuroimmunologist, big fancy term for what she did. She discovered that the information processing receptors on nerve cells, this is so interesting, were present on most, if not all, of the body's 50 trillion cells. She established that the mind is not merely in the head or in the gut, but actually distributed throughout the entire body. Bruce Lipton, who I've been riffing on lately as well, went a step further and showed how the cell membrane is better described as a mem, B-R-A-I-N, membrane. Don't just think of just one brain sitting on top of a mindless body or even a second brain in your gut or your heart. Think of a mindful body composed of 50 trillion little brains in other words, a body absolutely full of mind. When the Hevaja Tantra, one of the most elevated texts in Buddhism, proclaims that the wisdom abides in the body, it now has scientific backing. So anyway, that's what I was working on this morning. I just wanted to share that with you all. Uh, my dear friend Reggie Ray, um, he riffs on this a ton. He's written like five books on this stuff. There's a lot of really cool literature on this. And so... You know, the bottom line is, um, if you don't bring your body with you along the path, in fact, in Tantra, <clears throat> that's one of the real gifts of, of Tantra Vajrayana, is body is as important as mind. Oops, hold on a second here, I'm making a little mistake on my other computer. Um, and so the importance of bringing that body along with you, your body is super important. Okay, so I'm pulling up the doc to get to the questions, and then if there are some other questions, 
feel free to line them up. So here's some of the ones that came in. Oh yeah, so the one from yesterday, okay. On yesterday from last week. Yeah, this is the tricky one. So um, Eric sent this from last week. One of my teacher's text of choice as a roadmap for the journey is the Bhagavad Gita. Verse 116 seems to speak to our area of interest. Would you please expound on it from a nocturnal perspective? Uh, so here's the verse, and then I'll say a little bit. Um, so this is from the Bhagavad Gita. That which is like night to all beings, there the self-controlled is awake. And that in which all beings are awake is like night to a seer. That's fantastic. But I have no idea what it's talking about. <laughs> and by this, what I mean is, it's a little bit presumptive for me to come in as an outsider. This is the difference between what's called the emic and etic perspective. So the emic perspective is the insider's perspective. That's someone who, you know, is a Hindu, studies the Bhagavad Gita, knows the language, knows how to decode it, and can really, you know, run with it from that emic perspective. I'm coming in from an etic perspective. I'm an outsider. I don't, you know, while I have tremendous respect for the Bhagavad Gita, I don't study it. Um, I read it. I'm not a Hindu. So I can only give you my, you know, dilettantish riff as an etic, from an etic perspective. And that probably doesn't mean a lot. <laughs> but anyway, this is what came to mind with this sort of thing. And, and I say this really with some, some, um, kind of authenticity because it's really, it's so easy, facile, and I think problematic to just, you know, come running in with one's predispositions and history to bring that lens to a completely different tradition. Now that's not to say that there may not be in fact be some perennial truths that are here for sure. But, you know, this stuff is, is written in, in what's called twilight or code language as a lot of these great texts are kind of a self-secret language, which is not only self-secret to people within the tradition, but it's self-secret for sure from people who are etic like me. And, and so therefore I can give you just my dilettante, you know, armchair riff as an outsider. It probably doesn't mean a whole lot. And someone who's a scholar of this would probably say that it, it has nothing to do with what this verse really means. And, and I would have to be like massively corrected. So it, it's, it's a little bit tricky to just kind of dance between these. Um, so with that said, um, you know, what I would, when I look at this, I, I try to decode using my access codes, like what is some, some of this twilight language? So when, when it says that which is like night to all beings, well, what is the night um, a code for? In my language, it's code for a number of different things, um, subtle, also ignorance, also the unconscious. So which one of those is it? I don't know. But that at least is, you know, that this is kind of like dream language, twilight code language that I would bring to a text like this. So anyway, that which is like night to all beings, there the self-controlled is awake. Okay, so what does the self-controlled refer to? Well, my first, first hint on this would be that the self-control represents someone who's controlled their own mind. They're the self-controlled is awake. So someone who's controlled their mind, they're awake. And so when they fall asleep, the, the line that did come to mind here, Eric, um, is Ramana Maharshi's great famous line from the Advaita Vedanta tradition. So even with Hind, within Hinduism, right, another Hindu school, they have a different read on it. But you probably heard this very beautiful famous line that which does not exist in deep dreamless sleep is not real. What a great line. So that which does not exist in the deepest of the night <clears throat> isn't real. And so when you're awake, if you're self-controlled and you're awake, then you're actually the most awake in this formless dimension. So then the last clause is, and that in which all beings are awake is like night to a seer. I mean, these are fantastically beautiful cryptic lines. Um, and really on one level, it's almost just resting in the mystery of it, like almost like poetry. Ron Noble, almost like dream interpretation. That, that's really the beauty for me. Um, so the last clause perhaps refers to formless awareness, that in which all beings are awake is like night to a seer. You know, so perhaps it's referring to someone who has this level of familiarity, this level of, of lucidity, ultimate lucidity, 
Um, and, and for that person, then there is no night. Everything is completely awake. But again, Eric, I'm, I'm totally shooting from the hip here. Hip here. I, I don't know the languaging here. It's a complete guess. Um, so with that said, you know, I prefer not to run any further with it because if there's a, a Bhagavad Gita scholar out there, they may be rolling their eyes and saying, this guy has no idea what he's talking about. And I would say, you know what, you're right. <laughs> okay. God, these questions, like these last couple of weeks, man, would you guys eat like steroids out there? I mean, these questions are so good. So this is from David. <clears throat> I love these questions. If a unified field of experience is non-dual awareness, I'm gonna read this first and then, and then um, unpack it a little bit. And if actually if David's here and wants to, it's always better if I can have some interchange with the person, but here's the question. If unified field of experience is non-dual awareness, how is the world mind co-created? Where does the co arise from? If mind only, where does differentiation of experience or co-creation of minds arise? These, these are great questions, man. These are awesome. So David, if you're there, my friend, you know, first thing that comes to mind is questions of this magnitude and depth really need to be approached from relative and absolute perspectives um, because they ping, your question pings on both relative and absolute ways of relating to this. So when you're talking about unified field of experience, I mean, right there, like David, if you're on, we can talk about it. What are you really referring to? Uh, David is on, if you want me to bring him on. And yeah, him. let me do this. Let me let me give okay. my, my little preparatory riff here. And then if David is here, we can ping it back and forth a little bit. Cool. See if anything of what I say here lands. So, um, so when David, you come on, I'm going to ask you, you know, when you're talking about a unified field of awareness, a unified field of experience, I'm curious what, where you what context are you deriving that from? Because on one level, even when you use unified, you know, this idea of oneness, um, again, I'm not being clever here. It's just this, the nuance associated with these types of questions. It's not, it's not one, it's none. So when we say unified field of awareness, even the word unified is problematic. Um, but with that said, I'll try to run with what, you, what you're talking about. How is the world mind co-created? Well, from an absolute perspective, the world is, is uh, just an expression of mind. It's just the, literally the light of the self-reflexive or the reflexively aware mind. So from an absolute perspective, third turning, Shantong Vajamaka, Ardo Dharmata perspective, that the world is just that radiant shine, Tsao uh, in Tibetan, T-S-A-L, Lila in Sanskrit, Rolpa in Tibetan. It's just the play of the mind, the light of the mind. And, you know, the teachings, like I mentioned, Bardo Dharmata teachings riff on this, Dzogchen teachings riff on this, um, third turning teachings riff on this. Now, from a relative perspective, um, this is really interesting. And again, because these questions, David, you know, these are really deep foundational questions. So there's so much to say here. Um, how is the world mind co-created? Well, one way to talk about this is how does this light from the absolute radiance get reified? How does it get frozen? Well, it gets frozen out of ignorance. And there's so many different frameworks to explore with this one. One is Yogacara teachings are super helpful here. How the, using that languaging, how the uh, Alya Jnana flips into the Alya Vijnana, how the seventh consciousness looks back. So you're asking, how does it happen? <clears throat> from the Yogacara, considered by many the most refined philosophical school to arise from India. From their perspective, how it happens is that the seventh consciousness looks back upon the eighth, mistakes it literally to be self, looks out at the radiance, mistakes it to be other. So from that languaging, that's how it takes place. Um, but neither of those are fundamentally true. It's just even from that perspective, it's just the eighth consciousness, Alia consciousness, even deeper, appearing as if near or far. So this question can be answered, addressed from a relative perspective from a number of different traditions. I think the Yogacara has one of the most compelling answers around this. Um, but let me just say one my last, last thing about the last line, and then if you're on, we can ping it around a little bit. So the reason it's co-arising is because you're not experiencing just your mind, right? The universe um, is not, I think there was a question last week from the physicist, right? 
the, the reality is not solipsistic. It's not just your mind. It's a collective dream. It's co-created by all the other sentient beings that karmically predispose and actually we co-create generative this, this way. And, and I've talked about this a lot. The place to go for this aspect of your question is the Kala Chakra Tantra, second chapter on the individual. That talks about this with extraordinary elegance and precision. Um, and then with it, within that said, within this unified collective stream, there are these, it's like you have this collective current using metaphors. You have these individual um, mind streams, santana it's called in, in the Theravada tradition. These individual, relatively, relatively speaking, they're like one image I've heard that's pretty cool is like you have this kind of collective stream that you're talking about this unified field, unified stream of experience. And individual um, kind of expressions of that would be little whirlpools, the little vortices within this stream. And, and so um, if you're on David and want to ping this back and forth for a second, come on board. Um, great question, a lot to say about it, but maybe I'll pause for a second to see if you want to say um, anything or if what I just said has any meaning for you. So are you there, buddy? Yes, I, I am. Uh, thanks for getting into this. Uh, now this is a continuation of, of what we talked about last time. And if I'm not mistaken, um, that particular phrase, um, Joe Parent had uh, texted um, me in the, in the chat huh? when, I, when I'd asked about it and, and he, had, he had called it um, that. So the yeah, he had called it what? The unified field of experience? Yes. Okay, okay. And um, the, the, the point is, uh, you know, to me is um, how it's not, um, you know, how, how you can be simultaneously creating something with, without um, any solid existence um, and how it works as a, co-creation how um um you know if they're um if if we're just a web or a field or even some of the einsteinian look at that gravity fields within a uh, 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 I, I would use, I, I, maybe i could use einstein's ideas where he <laughs> talked about the, the world um and I'm aware that he's not the last word in physics anymore, <laughs> but he's pretty damn good. Yeah. Uh, but the idea that that um, you know the 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 world, it's really hard to uh, to graph it out. But if you're trying to put it into to um, on a sheet of paper, you could graph it out as these gravity wells existing um, in the, the the field of 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 light, and they're they're drawing it down, um, and it's just places where it's heavier or where it's more intense. So it's consciousness, say that, where that different um, points within the, the unified world um, are the, 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 um, uh, the <laughs> uh, you know, uh, not even unified. I understand that too. It's right. not, it, it, was, it was never separate. The nonified, non yeah. Not non-dual, but it's it's non-separate, um, and but it's so subtle how to um, even envision it um, in a, in a way that you look at. Um, am I by my consciousness? Am I helping to create the clouds that go over? Um, is it? Uh, and, and if so, and, and this is all simply, um, you know, if, if consciousness is creating um, the, the world that we experience, notice I'm saying the world that we experience, not the world, but where does it happen that uh, um, the neighbors and I, I mean, you know, we might be creating a community, but are we, we, are we somehow creating um the shared experience beyond that. Uh, you know, I'm quite well aware of science and um, Schrodinger's double blind experiment, um, which um, holds up repeatedly every time. It's one of the most verified, um, startling scientific uh, discoveries ever um, that uh, the universe doesn't take 
a form without observation. But yeah, where does, you know, and then, but then I understand, you know, there's no place we're observing from, but the observation is still happening. Right. So David, let me interrupt you for just a second, because we're, 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 we're heading down an impossible rabbit hole here. Um, and let me tell you why, because it, this, this question is thorny enough when, and it's a great question, so I'm not dissing it at all. Um, it's a great question. I think about this stuff all the time, and I love it. But, but we're running into a, a, a real, what's called a category error, um, by jumping ship from one paradigm to the next. In other words, this question is profound and thorny enough within one contemplative tradition, let alone another, and really further complicated when you start to bring science in. Now that doesn't mean there isn't tremendous validity to each one of these tracks of addressing this question. Absolutely positively there is. But I think there's an equal amount of tremendous peril when you read things like, you know, going back to the beginning of these conflations, things like the Tao of physics and the dancing Wuli masters, where you say, well, you know, because science is saying this, it's related to that. So mm -hmm. if, you, if we were to be doing debate, as you know, you can't do what you're doing. So I'm gonna be, because I know you and I love you, I can give you a little feedback. When, mm -hmm. when you're talking about things that are this refined as a rule, you have to stay within one particular framework. Now that isn't to say outside of it, you can't say, oh, there's an interesting correlate between that and Einstein and Bohr and Heisenberg, for sure. I mean, Ken Wilber does all this stuff. He's, by the way, if you wanna look at that, read his book, Quantum Questions. There's a ton of really compelling literature on this but you simply cannot hitch your spiritual horse to these scientific principles because the, the fundamental descriptions of the wisdom traditions do not change and science is constantly changing. So what happens when you hitch that horse to something that's, that's changing? Does your spirituality then change? So when you bring the science into it, now you've, you've immediately left into uh, the absolute and you're tracking it from the experience of the relative. That's fine, but then you have to stay there. You can't dance back forth before and forth, back and forth between the two. And so because I am a little bit aware, I studied physics for three years, I know a little bit about this stuff. Um, you know, I much prefer, I find it actually much more elegant in my experience to talk about this in a more absolute way, using the kind of wisdom traditions that, you know, that you're also very deeply familiar with. So because this is such a deep labyrinthian issue, I just wanna throw a couple of caveats about how one has to be extremely careful when we talk about these sorts of things, because even the languaging, you know, you have these multivalent terms that are used in the same tradition in, in, in these different traditions. And so, as I often say, just because you have the same signifier doesn't mean it refers to the same signify. And this, this is, these are these category mistakes that happen all the time. So if we were to take this, in, into some depth, not only would we completely set aside the physics, we would then go to a particular school that approaches this, let's say Yogacara, let's say Dzogchen or whatever, or Advaita Vedanta. And then we start to look at it very deeply from that lens. Then we can do something a little bit fruitful. So th this stuff, again, it's a terrific question. I love this sort of thing, but because it is so subtle and so nuanced, um, you know, and I've been taking the task on this myself in debates with, with scholars and scientists. We have to be unbelievably precise and we have to stay the course within the particular paradigm or framework that we're referring to. Because once you start jumping out, that's actually considered cheating in the debates. Um, <laughs> you have to stay within your school. So because I'm more familiar with Yogacara and, and Bardo teachings and Dzogchen, um, plus, I, I honestly think it has more explanatory power. I really do. Again, science, because it deals with a level of form, will forever be evolving. These perennial truths from the tradition, they, these are part of the changeless nature. They don't evolve. They don't change. So you can't hitch these two wagons. You know, you can't hitch that pony to this wagon. It just doesn't work. So with that said, my friend, again, for the purposes of time, oh my gosh, we could do a whole course on this. Um, I would love it. Sean Carroll, listen, here's another one. If you want to, to get some idea of this, listen to the interview, not the interview, the, uh, there was a, you can get it online. Really interesting conversation with Alan Wallace and uh, Sean Carroll, a physicist, theoretical physicist on the nature of reality. And I actually communicate with Alan after this conversation because Al, Alan, I thought said some incredibly insightful, brilliant things. 
And Sean just wouldn't listen to him. I mean, it was like, it was like they were just like talking past each other. Um, and so, but just to give you some sense of how uh, this conversation can go um, in very interesting directions, look up the, the dialogue. I think it's on the nature of reality, Sean Carroll, the Alan Wallace, because um, they riff a little bit, a little bit about this kind of thing, but it just shows you how very thorny, tricky, difficult it is to talk about this, especially it's hard enough, like I said, within a tradition, really, really difficult um, to talk about it outside of traditions. And so with that said, um, with your permission, I'm gonna let it go for now so I can just turn to other questions, but I love what you're bringing up. And I think when I work with this stuff, you know, I've been slapped around. Um, there's a lot of mistakes, intellectual mistakes that can be made with these types of um, comparisons and conflations. And so we just have to be extremely precise and careful. So is that okay with you, bud? Can I zoom it in a little bit into dream though? Okay. If, if you're just, you know, if you're, if given all of this, yeah. and then in the dream, uh, the dream isn't going to play fair. It's not going to stick to the level of the debate, but you also can create karma by what you dream. Only if you're conscious, only if you're lucid. Non-lucid dreams do not create karma. Non-lucid dreams are the, the result of karma, but if there's no intentionality involved, they don't create karma. Karma is created when intention is involved. So if it's a non-lucid dream, there's no karma created. If it's a lucid dream and you intend karma is created, so there's that differentiation. Okay. Okay. All right. Thanks, David. I always appreciate your comments and questions. Thanks for them. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. Take care, bud. You. Okay. There's Chad. Okay. Do you guys know Chad from uh, from Saturday Night Live? I love this guy. He's a, he's a relatively new character for me. He's just like total kick in the pants. Okay. So from Peter. Hi, Andrew, thinking of one's, yeah, this is a longer question. So thinking of one's inner state of mind as being akin to a climatic condition, does it follow that the activity purpose of meditation is to take stock of what one's internal weather condition is like? Uh, I'll answer this as I go along. Yeah, that's part of it. Um, basically, um, I'm not sure I'd use the word taking stock, but simply just checking in, seeing what's there. And then of course, relating to those weather patterns, so to speak with equanimity. So back to his question. Thus, for example, if one recognizes, is aware of the fact that one's thoughts are racing, would that then equate to oneself being caught in some kind of storm? Yeah, you could say that as an analogy, yeah. And that one is then presumably seeking to find refuge from that storm. Sure, analogically, sure. Moreover, would that seeking of refuge be dealt with in meditation by, for example, exerting oneself to remain focused on following the ins and outs of one's breath? That's one thing you can do, um, Peter. That's, you know, that's a really cool thing about these meditative traditions. There are so many different ways to do that. One is to just, as you say, take refuge, gain this perspective by staying with your breath and then witnessing it. That's probably the classic shamatha, vipassana, mindfulness, awareness, kind of more entry level. We'll leave it at that. But there are many other ways to work with that. But what you said is a really powerful kind of entry way for sure. Uh, would that then mean that one could, should just remain seated there and simply enjoy the good weather and not feel obliged to do anything? Yeah, it's called witness awarenessing. Um, it's like what Kripalu says, beautiful statement. Um, the highest form of spiritual practice is self-observation without judgment. It's been fantastic. So watch the weather of your mind. Um, in fact, Pema Chodron's first book of the Wisdom of No Escape has several chapters somewhat related to this, weather and the Four Noble Truths. So the weather analogy is a really, uh, it's a beautiful one actually, and it's a good one. But what you're saying is true. Remain seated there and simply enjoy the good weather and not feel obliged to do anything about it. Yes, and also don't have preference for it. You know, um, life is not a fair weather event, right? So, so when the weather gets crappy and hailey and stormy, can you relate to that using your analogy the same way you relate to sunshine? That's the practice. That's the practice a little bit deeper than what you're saying, you're relating with um, ultimate great equanimity to whatever arises. Sitting there like the proverbial bump on the log, are you on the right track here? Yeah, I think you are, Peter. 
Yeah. And that analogy, you know, whether the weather and space analogy is a really good one, right? Um, I use it a lot. It has a lot of traction, especially when you associate or you can make the analogy that space, mind is like space, awareness is like space. Clouds and weather patterns are like thoughts, storms, for sure. Um, there's There are some definite um, um, analogs there, absolutely. Okay, from Tim. I know Thursday is our open question day, so I have a somewhat different question. That's okay, any question can come in. I am lately seeing a lot of news about UFOs and aliens and the upcoming government disclosure coming by the end of the next month. Oh, I didn't know there's an upcoming disclosure coming up. Oh, that's cool. We've probably had aliens living in the White House. That's probably what the disclosure is gonna be. <laughs> Sorry, I have to stay apolitical here. So you gotta laugh about some of the stuff, right? <clears throat> okay, back to Tim. I do find this interesting and wonder if, um, if there's a particular viewpoint on this or, or if I have any personal view concerning this subject. Did Trump ever say anything about this? Not that I'm aware of. Um, the Tibetan viewpoint on this, I don't know of one, Tim, but I, I have to tell you, I'm interested in this stuff. And I'll tell you why, principally. I read, I think I might have said something about this almost a year ago. Um, uh, a friend of mine sent me a paper by Sean um, oh, S. Born Hargens. Sean S. Born, S. Born Hargens. He's a really interesting um, integral thinker, PhD, very smart guy, philosopher. He wrote this paper that I was, I was actually blown away by this paper. In fact, I, I got his email. I had intended to reach out to him to actually bring him on, see if I could interview him. But when I read this paper, Tim, it's on uh, what's called now Excel studies. And it was super interesting. The whole paper, um, at first I thought it was like, you know, a joke. I, I actually sit, looked at the date, like was, was this published on April 1st? But Sean goes through an incredibly interesting, um, very intellectual, very broad integral analysis of Excel studies and, and his look at non-human intelligence, NHIs, UFOs, aliens. And then he, he uses all this stuff. You know, years ago, I used to just like most people go, oh, geez, like, you know, whatever. Just I like, had zero interest. But when I read Sean's paper and I started to think about this more, I became more and more interested in it. And because what Sean does is he then uses this kind of thing with UFOs and aliens and, and non-human intelligences as a way to explore alternate ways of looking at reality, liminal states and what he calls an ontological matrix, which is a super interesting way, a much more refined, elegant way that actually in the spirit of integral studies, can embrace the, the complete validity, veracity of these called UFOs um, and whatnot. And so, oh my gosh, there's so much to say here. I, I actually, you know, now that you kind of bring this up, it somewhat inspires me to, to reread that paper and maybe get back in contact, um, not back in contact, but initiate contact with Sean and see if I can get him to come in and chat uh, about this kind of stuff because it is really interesting stuff. It, it, it kind of rattled my cages when I read this paper because it completely changed my way of thinking about this stuff instead of just categorically dismissing it, really looking at it in, in a more kind of um, integrated perspective. So the Tibetans, not that I'm aware of, um, but you know, one thing they do talk about that is kind of resonant with this is, is, is multi-world systems for sure. So when, you know, when we talk about things like UFOs and aliens, in this context, we're just talking about that within this particular bandwidth of reality. Well, you know, what the Tibetans do talk about are, you know, 27 different dimensions in samsara altogether, right? Not just this earthly dimension. And then you have all the trans samsaric dimensions. And so the Tibetans absolutely positively riff on that, which is a much bigger topic than the UFOs, alien things, but it's kind of within that context, within that flavor. So really interesting question. I'm, I didn't know anything about this government disclosure. That'll be interesting. But yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for bringing that up. Okay, let me get, there's a bunch of them, so let me paint through a couple. From Linda, comment, there are many anecdotal stories on the internet of organ transplant recipients who develop tastes and characteristics of the donor. This relates to the neural relationships of various organs in the brain, various organs in the brain. Oh, absolutely, Linda. In fact, in, in later in that 
section that I was just commenting from, I, I give some of these statistics that it's super interesting when I talk about, um, you know, the, the inseparability of body and mind and exactly using studies like this that, that often recipients will have memories and images that are not, are not theirs, that are consistent with the life of the donor. So, I mean, that's like interesting, it's all get out. And literally, perhaps no surprise, the, the patients who have the biggest incidence of this are heart transplant patients. So people who receive a literal heart can have a figurative change of heart. Um, I, I just love this stuff. It's, it's like totally mind bending, right? So when, when these organs are transplanted, it's not just the matter <clears throat> that's coming. Part of the mind of that person is actually coming along. So you know, part of their mind stream is actually transplanted into you. I mean, how interesting is that? So I'm aware of these studies, Linda. I love this stuff. It's not just anecdotal. There's, it's more than anecdote. Yeah, uh, Barry, Charlie Morley's using the five-five breathing method. Oh, nice. Very cool. Yeah, Charlie's a great guy. Thanks for that, Barry. HJ comment, this is similar to box breathing, which is in cycles before. Oh, I don't know about box breathing. So that's cool. Thank you. Um, anonymous comment. Einstein said, only two things are infinite. <laughs> yes, I know this line. This is a great line. Only two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity. And I'm not sure about the former. <laughs> that is a terrific line. Yeah, I, I'm familiar with that. I just love it. Only two things. Who knows if he really said this? He probably did. Um, I haven't really taken the trouble to track it down, but I know it's attributed to him. Only two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity. And I'm not sure about the former, it's fantastic. Which means the universe may be finite and human stupidity definitely is infinite. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, so one from Rahim and then a raised hand from Amanda. Oh, and then there's a thing about, from Chantal about UFO. So cool, we'll get to all these. Okay, from Rahim. There doesn't seem to be any word in Vajrayana, in the Vajrayana tradition that is mindfulness. Uh, well, they don't use that term. Uh, um, shine. Um, I've checked with a few translators that I know on mindfulness doesn't seem to be in tradition. Well, yeah, again, yes, yes and no. Um, you know, mindfulness is, oh, where did I track down? Oh, I just read an article by Andrew Olinsky. He's the um, kind of the scholar in residence at Barre, Barry, and also Tricycle Magazine. He talked about the very first use, this, this Anglo use of, of the word mindfulness. I just read it and I can't remember exactly what he said, but what you're saying is true. Um, but the spirit is encapsulated in the term shine. Um, and it's also connected to lakhtong. So, yeah, they don't use the word mindfulness, as you say, but um, that's because mindfulness is a kind of bastardization of these, these uh, terms that the closest one in Tibetan um, that I'm aware of would be shine, um, sati, shmerti, pali, Sanskrit. Um, so you can do, you know, you can do a little etymological research here and, and you'll find the true analogs to the word mindfulness. And again, if I, had, if I had a second, I could probably Google this thing I just read from Andrew Olinsky, but I, I can't surface it. Um, but he talks about this very specifically. Okay, so Amanda, if you're there, fire away. Andrew, so um, about the body, I totally agree with you, important it is. And, and uh, Sokni Rinpoche has been so helpful, hasn't he, talking about the subtle body. And um, I thought, Myself, I had a di diagnosis about 20 years ago of something that could have developed into cancer. And with meditation, issues were surfacing that I needed to process. So I managed to reduce this area that I had by, well, by more than half. So in fact, the doctors wrote the case up because they thought it was very interesting that, that you know, by, by actually releasing all, all this stuff, you, you know, you, you, you become more, you know, you clear, clear the system. But what I wanted to ask you about was, um, I found it very challenging uh, dealing here. I am, I don't, I'm not at home at the moment, so you can't even see my bookcase because <laughs> I know you like looking at people's bookcases. But um, it's really dealing um, with Brexit and with the pandemic in a foreign country, 
talking a foreign language, I found it very challenging. And one of the things is not taking on other people's fear because there's so much fear around, isn't there? And, you know, I've had to deal with so much difficulty with the bureaucracy in France, which is really unbelievable. Yeah. So I was thinking of your phrases, you know, don't give it a place to land and all that. But it's very difficult because, you know, there's an energy of the fear, isn't there? And so, of course, you know, one has to really um, monitor the amount of time you have around people who really, you know, are not doing the work themselves and are giving out a lot of negativity. Oh, yeah, no kidding. Yeah. You know, I don't yeah. know whether you have any idea. Oh, for sure. Yeah. You know, the fear thing, you know, yeah, I've, I've, I've thought about this a lot and, and actually riffed on it a little bit. Fear is extraordinarily contagious um, and it's, it's highly infectious. It's highly marketable. I mean, you know, in the States, when the pandemic was breaking, you know, Andrew Como, before he got in trouble, of course, said something spot on. He said, fear is more contagious than the virus. And it is um, because fear Again, you can campaign on it. Look at what, what our recent president did. That's why he was so, success, so successful. You can market it because it's so primal. It's so fundamental and it's so reifying. It's actually the fundamental um, affective expression of samsara, um, anger and fear. And so, yeah, it's core. And, and that's why it's, it's so easy to default into it. That's why people can um, spread it. And therefore, like you said, one has to be pretty stable. One has to really bring uh, an appropriate lens so that this fear doesn't gain purchase in your own being. And then sometimes, you know, until we have the capacity, the stability, the, the spaciousness to be in any environment where the environment no longer affects us, you know, this is what I, it's called absolute city or absolute power, right? When the world no longer has power over you, that's very, that's, that's very high level spiritual realization where you can be in such infectious environments and it, you don't catch the virus. It does, it's not contagious, you're not infected. But until we get to that point, exactly what you say, we have to sometimes separate ourselves, we have to titrate, we have to limit, we have to diet, whatever metaphor you wanna use, simply because this default is so ingrained, it's been going on for so long, that it's incredibly easy. There's a reason it's a default to just slip into that. And then it's not just fear, but it's all the other things that cascade upon it. Yeah. Upon that, you will find, you know, if you really look close upon fear, you'll find things like sadness, depression. I mean, there's this whole secondary tertiary quaternary expression of these um, not so healthy states of mind that they all can be reduced to fear. It's just that fear is the most foundational. And so I can only say, I agree with everything you're you're sharing and that it does take some practice. It takes some sanity. It takes some understanding and compassion. And then also it takes courage to sometimes just say no and, you know, and just simply walk away. Um, but the fear thing, you know, and I was, uh, I read a recent thing by Kempo Kartan Rinpoche, fear is with us until Buddhahood. Um, fear is with us until the end of the ninth, 10th Bumi. So we'll be working with, with expressions of fear until we attain enlightenment. Because, and again, it makes total sense to me because if fear is a, is a relative bedwork of samsara, the closer you get to the truth, the more you're gonna to have to face it. And so that's why it's really important. And I've, again, I did an entire program last year working with fear and anxiety and in a certain world because this stuff is so infectious, so contagious um, and a, a virus worse than any. So any, anything else to say on that outside of just good luck? <laughs> I think there is something important here. It's about sleep because, you know, if one's tired, one obviously hasn't got the sort of resilience and that's why it's really important. And, you know, sleep is a bit difficult. So I was thinking about, um, you know, well, there's all these different opinions and I know you've had the sleep doctor talking about how many hours we should sleep. But, you know, I have had this habit of waking up in the middle of the night and I'll sometimes, you know, log on, you know, tune in to, to what's, you know, whatever's going on on the night. Don't you know, do the that. Night. That's like the worst thing to do, right? Any sleep doctor will tell you, yet, don't I do know. that. I know, because then I'm thinking, Maggie Thatcher got dementia because she only slept for four hours a night. So you That's know. right, and Reagan, and, and people, and it'll happen to Trump. I mean, there's a direct ratio of people that don't sleep enough to get early onset dementia and Alzheimer's. So anyway, that's yeah. a different story, yeah. yeah but I think you, you, you've said, 
said before, the important thing is to get that special sleep before midnight, you know, where you get the REM and you get the, the sort of healing aspects of it then. But I mean, you know, so I think that's very important, the sleep side. And okay, the last thing I'd say is obviously about the humour, because that's my thing. I'm, I sent you that article about humour last year. Do you remember about the importance of humour? Yeah, I loved it, loved it. And, um, Absolutely. and of course, I, I liked your humour because since, you know, you started last year, you know, you were quite serious in one or two of the first uh, <laughs> first courses you did. And I thought that one you did with Shambhala was just fantastic about the Bardos. I'm re, you know, I'm redoing that at the moment. I thought it was just really, really helpful. But I've noticed you've got more and more, <laughs> you know, humorous yourself, which is great because it, it is the answer. And what I want to give as a last example of how it works, the humor. Mm. When I was doing this work with cellular memory, um, I was doing some acupuncture once and I suddenly burst out laughing. I, and what had happened is some, something came up about some family issue or something. And um, I suddenly started laughing. And what came out of my mouth was the absurdity of it all. <laughs> and then my whole body shifted. And every, I don't know, like a tongue fell off my shoulders. I mean, a ton of memories and stuff that I'd been carrying for my family. And that was humor. I just started laughing and shaking. And that was just like that. So you know what? Sometimes you can have those physical releases, but it was on many levels. And I then felt very high for about two months after that. I felt as if I was walking on air. You know, it's funny because you know what? We're carrying this stuff. You know, Candice, we're all talking about that, as you know. You know, it's this thing of cellular memory. Yeah. You know, cellular yeah. memory. It's, it's Oh, isn't it? So, yep. you know, remember, so, so remember, yeah, remember Bruce Lipton's play on that membrane, right? The brain, the membrane has that memory. That's why he plays with that um, word, B R A I. So, I completely agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. It's not only really just, it's not merely cellular memory, it's also cellular tension. You know, I mean, the, the, this, this notion of tension is, is contraction is, is riddling our body all the way down to the cellular level. And so, yeah, it's, it's another instance yeah. of how your mind isn't up here. Your mind is saturated throughout your body and it's inseparable, very deep levels from the tissue and actually the cellular makeup of who you are. So I completely agree. Thanks for sharing that. When starts his meditation, you know, he, he kind of smacks his thighs. You know what he does? You know, stop. Oh, yeah, I know it very well. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I love he, the guy. And that's to get, that's to, you know, and then he shakes his hands like his eyes. I know. Yeah. Uh, yes, you know, you know, and then yeah. he, he sighs, you know, he says essence, love and clarity, you know, yeah. it's to clear the body, clarity. But, you know, in a way, he makes it very simple. It's beautiful. It's his, his form of uh, transmission. I love it. He's a genius. Yeah. He's one of the best out there. So thank so you for sharing. Really, yeah, I have to laugh every day. Absolutely. Good laugh every day. I couldn't yeah. agree more. Thank you, dear. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Okay. So a couple more written ones here. Okay. Okay, from Chantel, the, uh, uh, this week the Pentagon confirmed yet again the presence of UFOs. Cool. UFX, the UFO experience they were referencing was an object that was flying and then plunged into the ocean that the Navy witnessed and then checked out for the wreckage with their boats. They couldn't find anything. My question is, given that our experience of reality is no different than a dream, only our ability to perceive be more conscious, is it possible that whatever these UFOs are, they are on the same field as the awakened ones where they can materialize, dematerialize at will? Hence the many instances where these crafts disappear and then reappear at will. I have no idea, none whatsoever. But hey, you know, what do they say in the, in the great teachings, the, the um, emptiness teachings? Um, with emptiness, everything is possible. And so um, it's possible, but I can't speak with any authority on this sort of thing. So um, it's interesting kind of conjecture, Chantal, but I really um, agnostic at best. I have no idea. I mean, why not, right? But I just don't know. Yeah, the article that Sean sent, it, I, I don't think it's available. Um, I have to see if I can get permission to post it. So when I, I'm gonna reach out to him. You know, with all the stuff, I, he's a really sharp cookie. Um, if I can good, uh, reach him and he gives me permission to post it, then maybe I'll post it. Um, and then maybe actually I'll bring him on and we can have an interview with him. It's a really clever piece. Um, I was kind of, I had to read it several times because it's a real mind bender. It was just, it absolutely, completely stretched 
my mind. I mean, I, I literally, I have to pause because like my BS meter was just going in, in you know, the red, red zone, redlining. And I said, this is just bullshit. But then I said, well, wait a second. How do you know? You don't know that this is BS. But I, so it really tested me. It really stretched me. And so I had to read it a couple of times. And I, I, because it was, you know, delivery with such intelligence and thoughtfulness, I, I hung in there because I realized he had something to say. And after the second reading, it was like, whoa, there's, this guy's pretty clever. So stay tuned. Okay. Uh, yeah, the Drempa. Yeah, so a comment from, uh, yes, from Ralph, the Tibetan word Drempa. Yeah, D-R-E-M-P-A transliteration. Um, it, the word literally, yes, you're correct, is often translated as mindfulness. Again, it literally, it's a translation. The word Drempa means recollection or memory. And so, um, correct. Thank you for adding that. Um, completely agree. And it's a great addition. So thank you. This is related to the earlier question about finding the word mindfulness in Tibetan. So shine and drempa. Wendy, okay, question about dreaming. Last night I was dreaming. It was a wonderful positive dream. Four times in the dream I did the reality check. Cool. I would ask, is this a dream? <clears throat> check and look at my hands and pull and pull a finger. <laughs> I, did, I only did the finger thing a couple times. It did work. It was pretty cool. But the other thing I've done with my fingers that I do more than stretching the finger thing is, is putting my finger through my palm. So that's a state check I do even now. So like, you know, something weird happens, I'm interjecting in, into her comment. I'll try to do this. Oh, I can't do, I can't put my finger through here. So I must be awake. And I've, uh, I've triggered a number of lucid dreams where I'll do this in the dream and guess what? My finger goes right through my palm. And then it's like, whoa, I can't do that in waking like I must be dreaming. So the, the stretching thing, I've only done that a couple of times, but it did work. So back to her. Each time I was very excited that I saw my hands as normal, my finger did not stretch. <laughs> yeah, what a bummer, huh? That's the power of habit. <laughs> I actually cried with happiness that this wasn't a dream. When I woke, I was laughing at myself for believing it could have been real. Any hints on what I can do to realize I'm dreaming? <laughs> I've recorded over 550 dreams over the last five months. Good for you. Um, since beginning this journey, a few very short lucid episodes. Yeah, Wendy, you know, um, any hints on what I can do to realize I'm dreaming? Just keep going, um, keep doing all these state checks. You know, here's the thing about this stuff. Um, you know, lucid dreaming, especially dream yoga, yoga, dream yogurt, dream yoga is the moniker is the measure of the path. And so this is, a, this is one reason um, these practices are a tiny bit advanced because they will show you where you are. And if it takes some advanced attitude to accept that kind of truth. It's like, geez, there's a lot being revealed here. It's like, hey. So the, um, the reason I say this is that, um, hold on a second, I just had a, 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 a mental dream lapse, hold on. Is that, this is what I was going to say, is that with the proper view, even the so-called failures can be seen as successes. And by that, what I mean is that anything, if it's related to properly in the world of dream yoga can be seen as a success, even if you can't accomplish the practice or in this case, even lucidity. And so it's a success in this sense because it's revelatory. It again will show you the power of your habitual patterns that holy moly, you know, I'm doing all this stuff and I'm still I'm doing all these state checks and I'm still not able to attain lucidity in the dream. I mean, my friend, Joe Parent, he, if he's listening, he shares this hysterical story. It's just fantastic where, you know, Joe's a really sophisticated advanced practitioner. And he shared the story with me several times. It's just hysterical where he was in the lucid dream. And I'm pretty sure it was Trump Rinpoche. And Joe, if you're on, you can share the story where, you know, <clears throat> Trump Rinpoche in the dream is, is actually telling him that he's dreaming, right? So here he is, his teacher is in the dream and he's telling him that he's dreaming and he still doesn't get it. It's, it's, it's hysterical. It's just absolutely brilliant. So the only thing I say here, Wendy, somewhat connected to, to the earlier question about humor 
is just, Amanda was saying it, just enjoy it, laugh at it, realize, oh my gosh, look at the power of my habitual patterns. This is unbelievable. Don't get wigged out about it and just keep going. Now, specifically, you do all the things that we've talked about. You know, we have so many resources here. If you're a nightclub member, a number of uh, webinars were devoted to um, obstacles and antidotes. So you can look up the webinars to talk about that. Virtually every first round I had with the big teachers, Daniel Love, Robert Wagner, Charlie Morley, um, uh, Claire Johnson, every one of those people I asked exactly this question. Um, so uh, the other resource would be um, the Lucid Dreaming Guidebook, a work, uh, a step-by-step -step guide for mastering your dream life, the Harbinger Press book that I published in um, September. That has quite a bit on this stuff. So there's there's tons. You you keep meditating. You keep doing all the standard stuff. You keep working with more and more induction methods, and then eventually, like I mentioned, you're putting heat into the system. Eventually, even though things don't seem to be changing, you're warming up, and then eventually you'll come to a boil. But it's not a linear thing. You know, it goes up and then it comes down like a stock market. You have some really peak episodes, and then you'll enter a drought, like nothing is happening. And so under all those conditions, you just keep going. Um, harnessed with determination, levity, sense of humor and delight. And then the whole thing, even these failures, you know, I, 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 I do some of these dream yoga practices or I try, I can't do them. I, I try, I can't. It doesn't wake me out. You know, I wake up and go, oh, geez, you know, that official pattern is still really strong with me. It doesn't freak me out. It's like, okay, I need to put more energy into that. So um, maintain a kind of um, determined uh, attitude and that everything arises in the dream, even the so-called failures, there are no failures. It's like Tantra. There are no failures. They're just pointing out limitations. And then you accept that feedback and then you just keep going. Okay. <laughs> All right. So a comment. Oh, yeah, from Pakchak. Yeah. Um, Pakchak Rinpoche, I think, is your main student, uh, your main teacher, right, Andy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Patrick Grimm said about aliens, if they have ego, they need Dharma. That's, I love it. That's fantastic. <laughs> That's a really great, great line about aliens. If they have the ego, they need the Dharma. If they're an alien, it doesn't matter, right? <laughs> That's fantastic. So, okay, any other final live or, or written questions before we close it out for today? Yeah, this alien stuff, this is cool. Note to self, I'll reach out to Sean and see if we can bring him on board. It's a really interesting paper this guy wrote. Um, and I didn't realize all this stuff was cooking with, with the aliens and the, and the government these days. So uh, it, it's, it's pretty cool. So any other final questions or comments before we close? I'm gonna go out and look for UFOs tonight. I think we're good for today. Okay, all right. So this is what we started doing. It was Andy's, was it your idea, Andy? I love it. Everybody yeah. unmutes themselves. And not only do we wave now, but we all get to say bye. Thank you. Bye. 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 Thank you. Bye. 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 Is the world co-created by aliens? Yes. <laughs> We're all aliens. We're all, yeah. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 Bye.